Okay, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 7 um, through 35. Now, when I was doing campus ministry behind the Iron Curtain uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, several summer stints and then one year long uh, trip where Nancy and I actually met, I met my wife, it became uh, fairly common for a Czech student or a Slovak student or a Russian student or a Ukrainian student or a Kazakh student or a Central Asian student uh, to confuse me with someone else. (laughs) Much to my great personal enjoyment and the inflation of my already over puffed up ego. Um, This identity confusion would happen uh, in shops. It would happen in someone's flat. It would happen uh, at the beach. It would happen in the country. It would happen on the metro. It would happen on a bus. It would happen on a street. It would happen on a beach. Um, at first, I'd just laugh, and I'd say, no, no, I'm not him, right? Uh, but this, this is before I met my wife. But then if some cute girl said it, I had this internal turmoil would go on with me. It would be like, well, maybe we are related. You know, maybe we were twins separated at birth, even though he's 20 years older than I am. Um, and then my personal favorite all-time interrationalization was this one. Jeff, this is a great ministry opportunity. Look, yeah, wow. Our identity, our identity is a big deal, isn't it? Your identity is a big deal. Uh, But there is an even bigger deal. There is an identity (laughs) that reaches and trembles the very foundation and pillars of the universe. It's the identity of the one called Jesus. Who is this Jesus? I mean, we've come to the point in time in the book where his identity now is being forced upon everybody that he encounters. Everyone's trying to come up with a conception of who he is. And that's what we're going to see in these stories. Who is he? Who is this person? Well, there's a a biblical, well, there's a real biblical scholar that is kind of almost a -a one-of-a-kind scholar. His name is N.T. Wright. And he puts it this way. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? That the fire has become flesh. That life itself has become life and walked amongst us. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us... Unable to cope with the saying, with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world of between. Who is he? He's the hurricane become human. He's the fire that's become flesh. He's life itself who's become life. He's the most devastating disclosure of the ultimate reality of all things. He is the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. Do you want to connect with that? I mean, do you want to connect with the very deepest reality there is? The story of the universe, the one who makes sense of your life. Do you want Um, do you want your broken identity to be healed and your broken life to be healed? 
do you want to come in contact and connect with the source of your identity in life? Welcome. Welcome to Mark 3, 7 through 35. Richard's going to come up and read it for me. Let's stand to hear the word of God. So this is Mark 3, uh, 7 through 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. By the way, that's one of the best phrases I've ever read in Scripture, sons of thunder. It makes them sound like they're in a Christian motorcycle gang or something. Uh, I just love that, sorry. Uh, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, it is a window into ultimate reality, and we all need a big view of that. So would you open our eyes and would you work in our hearts uh, by the power of your Spirit, uh, the wonders, the depth, the riches. 
of who Jesus is. Amen. All right, let's start this way. It's kind of obvious. This passage is very schizophrenic, isn't it? This passage has multiple personalities. This passage has multiple identities. It appears to have no big idea. It feels like a string of disconnected stories. We have the crowds again, right? Then we have the selection of the 12. Then we have this account of the dysfunctional family in two scenes. And then we have this bizarre, visible, which means Lord of the Flies accusation. Um, So here's the plan. We're going to pull out the big idea. And then we're going to feel the force of it. So we've got to find the big idea here. And once we find it, then we're going to feel the force of it in each of those stories. Okay? So here it is. Uh, Let's find the big idea. First of all, by way of introduction, to find a big idea in Mark, uh, it's pretty difficult. Uh, Particularly because Mark is mostly about doing. This is an action hero gospel. This is a men's gospel. You know, action, action, action. No time for talking, no time for relationships. It's just happening, right? And it's happening. But so every time there is or there is a moment that Jesus actually says something and teaches and doesn't do, there's your big point. There's your big idea in a section. So when does it happen? Look at verse 28 through 30. This could be the most controversial passage in all the Bible. And we're doing it on parents weekend beautiful. Uh, It has certainly been the cause of unbearable spiritual, emotional, mental, and psychological pain for many, many, many people throughout church history. Uh, Here's why. Because many interpret and teach this passage uh, to identify some sin of no return. Mm. The unpardonable sin. The unforgivable sin. Or as the text says, the eternal sin. Some sin that's worse than all others. Some sin that's beyond redemption, beyond rescue, beyond salvation. This is a weird interpretation, I've got to say. Absolutely weird, but many teach it. Uh, So let me undo your weirdness. Undo the weirdness of this thing. Uh, This weird interpretation throws sensitive souls into spiritual spasms. It's kind of like, you know, did I commit this sin? Did I do it? Uh, And if I did, how would I know if I did? Oh, you'd know. (laughs) Right? Um, And then the sensitive amongst us would say, I must have committed it. I don't know what it is, but believe me, if it's there, I did it. Right? Someone in your life has probably told you in some way or treated you in some way like you've committed the sin of no return. So you know what I'm talking about. Even if you don't believe this theologically, someone in your life has treated you like you've done it. (laughs) Someone uh, has told you you've probably done it. I mean, wives, start with your husbands. Uh, Children, start with your parents, then work to your brothers and sisters. Right? We do this. It's easy to have a spiritual spasm today. We live in a world of anger. We live in a world of accusation. We live in a world in relationships filled with condemnation. We live this way. It's the way we relate, right? So it's easy to do this. Now, I want you to listen very, very carefully at this point. Every sin is the eternal sin. And you thought I was going to make you feel better. Every sin separates from God. Every sin wrecks friendship with God. Every sin 
darkens, destroys, disintegrates, disorients the human soul. Every sin deserves judgment. Every sin deserves eternal, apocalyptic, cosmic disapproval and rejection. Everyone. So here's what's going on in this passage. Here's the point. Seen in five or four scenes. You ready? Here it is. Man must have a savior. Got it? All right, now we've got to feel the force of it. But I, I, we've got to feel it just a little bit more before we go into the scenes. Look at verse 28 again and 30. These verses are not about identifying a sin of no return. They're about identifying the nature of sin. This passage is not trying to find and isolate some specific sin that's the sin of no return. It's trying to say, this is the nature of all sin. This is the DNA of all sin. If you cut sin open, this is what it bleeds. This is what it's like. And here it is. Sin is trying to be your own savior. Where do you get that? Well, in verse 28, we get the savior part. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. I mean, there's the savior. That's the, that's what we're looking for. The deepest need of every human being is forgiveness. The deepest need of every human being is friendship with God. If we don't have forgiveness and we don't have friendship, reach into the core of our being, your person unravels. You experience death on a comprehensive and very global way, certainly in your spirit, psychologically, and then ultimately physically, and then ultimately everything. To blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit's testimony, his report, his words that this is the Savior. It's to reject the Holy Spirit's testimony that this is the Savior by trying to be your own Savior. Okay? And so what happens is, if Jesus is not our Savior, our need for a Savior doesn't go away. We just go and try to find another one. And so instead of forgiveness uh, being found in the Savior, we try to find some provision to protect us from personal devastation and destruction somewhere else. So we go to a substitute Savior to try to do that. Instead of friendship with God, deep, deep, the deepest kind of acceptance and approval you can have, love you can have in the cosmos and the universe, instead of friendship with God, you, we go and we try to find that somewhere else in a substitute Savior. Um, one author who is reflecting on Franz Kafka's The Trial says, we still have a profound inescapable sense that if we were examined, we'd be rejected. We have a deep sense that we've got to hide our true self or at least control what people know about us. Secretly, we feel that we are not acceptable, that we have to prove ourselves and to other people that we're worthy, lovable, and valuable. Why do we do this? Why do we work so hard? Why do we always say, if I can just get to this level, I can relax? And we never relax once we get there. 
We just work harder and harder. What's driving us? What is this? Why is it that some of us can never allow ourselves to disappoint anybody? We have no boundaries, no matter what people ask of us, how much they exploit us, trample us, because to disappoint somebody is a form of death. Why does that possibility bother us so much? Where do all these self-doubts come from? Why are we so afraid of commitment? Kafka is saying, if you don't believe, you don't believe in sin, you don't believe in judgment, you don't believe in guilt, and yet you know somehow you are. In the core of your being, you know it. The need for forgiveness doesn't go away. It just tries to find another Savior. Look at verse 29. So this is nailed down, and you never have to deal with this again. If we try to be our own Savior all the way down to our last breath, yes, we will never find forgiveness. Because you are now your own Savior. You will bear the weight of your own sin. You will pay the debt. You will face the rejection. So there's either man must have a Savior. Either we trust in the real one or we try to be one. That's all we got. So, That's the point. You got it? Got the point? So the point is man must have a savior. Now, now, let's feel the force of this. Are you ready? Let's start with the crowd, verses 7 through 12. I want you first to look how big it's become. Good night. It now covers 170 miles north and south from Sidon or Sidon and Tyre down to Edomia. There's 170 miles now that this crowd is traveling and moving and gathering. It's also over 150 miles from the coast across the Jordan to the Transjordan areas. That crowd's now coming from there. So this is, this is before public transportation, folks. These are people walking. Walking. The Tough Mudder has nothing on this. This is a hundred and something miles that people are coming from. So notice how big the crowds got, but also notice how diverse it is. Did you see that? All these regions mentioned in the text are different kinds of people. The ones in Jerusalem, Judea, and Galilee are what kind of people? Oh, they're the deeply religious people. Those are the, the committed Jews. They're coming. But then when you go down to the uh, Transjordan areas and down into the south into Udumia, uh, there you have the Samaritans, and these are the mixed people. These are the semi-religious, sort of religious, kind of moral, kind of not people. These are, you know, this is people that go to church a couple times a year. It's mixed. All right, and then you have in the north, this is entirely Gentile territory. These are the irreligious people. These are people that flat out don't believe at all. All right? All of these people are coming. And notice the scene. It, it's like Walmart on Bad Friday or whatever that day, Black Friday. I've been there. I've seen the look in those people's eyes. It's scary. Bodies pressing against you, people pushing and shoving, clutching their stuff. I mean, look at verse 9. It's so much so that he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd, lest they crush him. This is not just like, oh, hey, Jesus, he's this big select. This is like he's come out and he's being mobbed and he's coming out and they want to touch him and they are after him. 
they got to touch him, right? Why? Why is the crowd there? What do they want? What are they after? Why would they travel so far? Here's the answer, verse 10, for he had healed many. So that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Here's the point. Everyone's looking for a healing. They want to be fixed. They want to be repaired. They want to be, I don't know, remade. But here's the deal. They think a physical healing is going to give it to them. They don't go deep enough. Man must have a savior. Okay, let's move on. Let's go to the dysfunctional family. This ought to feel right at home for every one of us here. Verse 20 through 21, 31 through 35, Jesus' family thinks he's lost his mind. Literally, the, literally, he's gone berserk. Okay? Now, it's fascinating that they don't think he's a liar. I mean, the classic C.S. Lewis, Lord, liar, or lunatic, your three options. They don't pick that he's a liar because they knew that much about him. <laughs> that Jesus never lied and would never tell a lie. So he must be out of his mind. So if he's out of his mind, you do what any good family would do. You hold an intervention, right? So here's what happens. Verse 21, they went out to seize him. It literally means they went out to control him. I mean, this is the irony of all ironies. These family that should know him most go out to control God. Family dysfunction, personal dysfunction, workplace dysfunction, relational dysfunction, church dysfunction is always about control. Always. Everybody trying to control what they want. Everybody trying to control what they think they gotta have. Everybody trying to control what they must have because if they don't get it, it's a threat to their personal existence. Everyone's trying to control their comfort, trying to control their reputation, trying to control their respect, trying to control their lovability, trying to control their acceptability, trying to control their righteousness, trying to control their worthiness, trying to control fill in the blank. If Jesus is not Lord, but a lunatic, then you and I will have to take the place of being Lord. And we'll try to control our lives. Because every man must have a Savior. Next, let's go to the bizarre Beelzebub accusation, 22 through 27. Now, notice the scribes are not denying Jesus' power. This is what's absolutely phenomenal to me when I was going through the text for the first time. They believe in his power. You catch that? I mean, this is not like a theological argument in journals. Well, you wrote about this proposition, I disagree, and then spent 500 pages of useless material arguing some useless point. This is not a theological argument. They see his power. They've seen it. It's happened. This is, and they've come to the conclusion, oh my word, this is supernatural. This is not normal. This is not of this realm. It must be satanic. They're not disbelieving his power. They're disbelieving the source. 
They don't believe that Jesus' power is saving. They don't believe that his power is good. They don't believe that his power forgives. They don't believe that his power can make a friend with God. They don't believe his power heals and restores and reaches the places that we need to be reached and unleashes life. They think Jesus' power will ruin them. Ruin their reputation. Ruin their respect. Ruin their control. Ruin their power. Ruin their worthiness. Ruin them. Look what Jesus says to them in verse 27. I mean, the first part is pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? I mean, does Satan cast out Satan? I think we all get that part. 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is stating unequivocally, listen, I didn't come to ruin, I came to rescue. This is a rescuing power. Rescue you from harmful powers. Certainly maybe the... Well, yes, the Lord of the flies, his lies, his accusations, his oppression, his abuse, certainly. But let's put it this in another way. If you are very fearful of what people think of you, so much so that you are constantly trying to appease and please and are deeply, deeply fearful of ever disappointing everyone, so you say yes to everything all the time. He has come to break that harmful control over you. Those of you and those of us that find in our career a sense in which this, this is me, this will define me. If I'm successful, I'm somebody. If I'm not, according to my standards, my boss's standards, my family's standards, I'm a loser. That's a harmful control. And he's come to break that. You mothers and ladies that are raising your kids and wondering if you're a worthy enough mom, a worthy enough wife, a worthy enough homemaker, a worthy enough friend, a worthy enough this, and a worthy enough baker, and a worthy enough sower. Do people do that anymore? A worthy enough whatever. That's a harmful control over your life. He's come to break that. And those of us that go by day after day, driven uh, to perfect ourselves, control our world, be worthy, be good enough, that's a harmful control. He's come to break that. Man must have a Savior. So how do we stop doing this? I mean, that's the question in the text. That's the question I was asking, and that's the question it took me a long time to figure out, quite honestly, uh, because I couldn't figure out what in the world the selection of the 12 has to do with this passage. Do you? No? I mean, isn't that the weirdest thing? You've got these tucked in between these people that are trying to be their own savior. You have the selection of the 12. What does that have to do? 
It has everything to do with the other people. And it has everything to do with the answer and the key to actually breaking out of trying to be your own savior. Why? Because the 12 are just like us and just like the crowd and just like the dysfunctional family and, yes, just like the scribes and the religious leaders because the 12 are trying to be their own savior too, but something's different. Something happened. Something changed in their life. I mean, first, let's look at the 12. The 12 are no different. First, you have four fishermen. Every time there's a list in the Gospels of the 12, Peter's at the top of the list. And every time it goes, Simon, whom Jesus named Peter. Now, for some of us, that's like, for me, I mean, when I'm reading the text now, I know enough because I've gone to seminary and I've read it enough times. I now know. Why in the world is he calling Peter when you know he is not a rock? He's the furthest thing from a rock. It's almost like a practical joke. Because it's like Peter ends up being sand. Are you with him? I saw you with him. I don't know him. The text actually says he cusses. Now, who cusses these days? He cusses. It says, no, I'm not. Three times he does that. And now, folks, this is when he was a Christian. This is when he went to church, had a quiet time every day, prayed, walked with Jesus for three years. And then you have the other two, <laughs> Richard's biker gang, Sons of Thunder. I mean, you know what Sons of Thunder means? It means they're hot-tempered. They're quick to fight. I don't know anybody like that. Then you got one hated tax collector, and then you got one terrorist. Did you catch that? I mean, Simon the Zealot is translated in the ESV as a Canaanian, but it, the literal translation is a zealot. A zealot was a radical, violent political party seeking to overthrow Roman oppression at any costs. So they had roadside bombs, they were terrorists. And then you got Judas Iscariot. I love this one. Scholars, they turn over and, well, they just, they go into convulsions about what Iscariot means because it's not his family name. It's not his surname. It's not Judas Hatton. It's not his last name. And then I read in my favorite commentary, Edwards, and he said, it could be. Here's a probable meaning. I'll just throw it out there. It means in that time, in that circle, the dagger man. And the dagger men were assassins. And they were a radical fringe group of the zealots that did the dirty work that no one wanted to do. They were the special forces assassins of the zealots. They'd slit your throat. So there we have this great group of guys. And then we have this six we don't know anything about. Do you know anything about the other six? Nothing. So we know six, some really compelling dudes. And then six we know nothing about, and they changed the world. Here's the point. Look at verse 14. And he appointed 12. Appointed is a translation, which means it's an interpretation, depending on your translation. Here's the original reading. Are you ready? This is better. Here's what the word literally says. And he made them. 
12. Oh, now that's completely different. To make is to bring into existence. Jesus brought into existence the 12. Why did he do this? Well, we're told it says in verse 14, so they might be with him. Mm. Forgiveness, friendship, love, acceptance with the ultimate reality of the universe. And then look at verse 14. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons, to unleash power and life through the good news through them. They actually get to tap into ultimate reality. They actually get to participate in the energy of the universe, the one who touches the foundations and pillars of it all. They actually get to be instruments in his hand. Unbelievable. And did you notice where this all takes place? Look at verse 13. Where does it take place? A mountain. The mountains in the Old Testament and mountains every time in Mark are places where God shows up. They're places that heaven and earth collide. Boom. Jesus shows up. God shows up. And he makes them. Creates them out of nothing. By his power by his grace by his mercy man must have a savior the only way to stop trying to be your own savior is you got to have a personal living real encounter with Jesus that's the only way he has to become real to you. Not an idea, not a doctrine, not a moral, not an example, but a Savior. Say it a little differently, the only way to move off our substitute Savior is to replace it with the real one. That's it. Why? Because you've got to have a Savior. You're going to have a Savior. We're going to have them. The only way to get rid of the ones that are collecting like trash in our soul, the substitute saviors, and you've got them, and you've got many of them, the only way to, to get them moving along, because you can't just rip them out because something else will just come in, you've got to replace it with the real one. So those of you that are feeling like you've gone too far, you have some version of the sin of no return. You actually think that. You think you've gone too far. I want you to listen again to Jesus' words in 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, whatever blasphemies you utter. How can this be? Because Jesus is the ultimate healing that the crowds were looking for. The one that gives forgiveness and the one that gives friendship with God. So trust him to be your ultimate healing. And here's the key. Can you doubt yourself enough to not be that for you? If you can say, I can't heal myself. And you can say to him, you're the one who can. You just 
stopped trying to save yourself. Those of you struggling with Christianity intellectually, you have some version of the Bible just can't be credible. I mean, listen to verse 21 again. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Now, please, listen. No one, no one seeking to promote a new religion is going to include an embarrassing and uh, uncomplimentary account like this about his family. I mean, if you're trying to promote a new religion, it's all good positive press, is it not? You're not going to say, well, my mom, my brothers thought I was losing my mind. Out of my mind, they did a family intervention on me. Right? That doesn't happen. So what does that speak of? You don't say something like that unless it's true. Unless Mark is just recounting what's true. Jesus is the ultimate control. He's the ultimate security, the ultimate safety that the family was looking for. Their life was out of control. They thought their son was out of control. They were grasping for control, so they went to take it. And the crazy thing is they tried to take control from God. And so the the check here, here it is. Can we distrust our own powerlessness? And turn to the one who has it. If we do, you you move from Jesus. You move from you trying to save yourself to Jesus trying to save you. All right, last thing. Those of you struggling with living with yourself and others around you, uh, severe circumstances, you have some version that life is hard and it's overwhelming. That's going on. I want you to look at verse 27 again. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever binds the strong man is stronger than the strong man. Jesus is the saving power, the deliverance, the rescue, the power to change a life, the power to grant freedom, the power to remake to bring into the existence that which is not. He is that. And that's what the scribes were looking for. So trust him to be that for you. Refuse to trust yourself that way. Doubt yourself. Disbelieve yourself. Say, self, I don't trust you to be Savior. You can't save me. Then trust the one who is.